Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast series on women with bleeding disorders. My name is Deborah Pollard. I'm one of the nurse specialists at the Catherine Dormandy Haemophilia and Thrombosis Centre at the Royal Free Hospital in London. I'm joined today by Dr Michelle Lavin, haematologist at the National Coagulation Centre at the St James's Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Hi Deborah, I'm delighted to be here today on this third podcast of the Women and Girls with Bleeding Disorders series. Our previous episodes discussed the importance of recognising bleeding symptoms in women and girls and of diagnosis and referral. But today we're going to focus on the impact of diagnosis and the medical treatment of bleeding symptoms. So when we talk about management, many listeners will immediately think about the medical management options. Michelle, I know you and Sarah O'Brien have talked about treatment in the first episode as well, but can you just briefly talk through the main treatment options in women and girls with bleeding disorders? Um, I'd be happy to now. You know, I think that there's a concern that the treatment of bleeding disorders may be very complex or involve complicated therapies. But in fact, many of the treatment options we use are are drugs and treatments that are used in a wide variety of other settings and that physicians will already be very familiar with. So we have general treatment options and then bleeding disorder specific treatment options. Um, And we primarily use those at the time of surgery to replace clotting factor concentrates or dental procedures. So the majority of treatments that we use for the management of um, bleeding in women are things like tranexamic acid, iron replacement therapy, hormonal therapy, and in particular, the intrauterine devices are particularly effective for women with bleeding disorders and are often overlooked or considered much later in their treatment journey. So I think a lot of doctors and nurses would be familiar with these and realize that it's not as complex as they may have initially thought. So the first line should be to make sure that women aren't iron deficient. And we don't just look for anemia. You should look for their ferritin and treat it even if they're not anemic. So with iron replacement, one tablet every second day. And then the next line treatment should be to stop bleeding, which is often heavy menstrual bleeding in my experience. I'm sure you see the same with your ladies that you treat, Deborah. Uh, absolutely. And I think that everything you're saying is is what I would say from a nurse's perspective and to nurse practitioners out in um, primary health care as well, who may well be the first people dealing with uh, the ladies with heavy menstrual bleeding. Again, just to reiterate what you said, tranexamic acid and hormonal methods of managing heavy menstrual bleeding are appropriate in our patients as well as in a, their general population. Yeah, and I think it's important that if you do think there's a bleeding disorder, somebody has additional bleeding symptoms just beyond heavy periods, that you don't wait until they're seen by a haematologist to start treatment. Any woman can start on tranexamic acid with or without hormonal therapy and to see if that improves it. And it's something you just use on the days of your heaviest flow. You don't need to be on it continuously for tranexamic acid. Obviously, hormonal therapies will depend on the hormones that are being used. Um, But I think people shouldn't be afraid to treat bleeding. They should start treatment early and refer women in for an assessment. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. 
But of course, you know, doctors, we always focus on medical management and we always think about, you know, tablets and medications. But as you know very well, Deborah, the management of women with bleeding disorders goes way beyond medical treatment options. And, you know, we see this every day. And in your work as a nurse specialist, you must have talked to so many women with bleeding disorders. What's your experience? Like, what does this diagnosis mean for a woman or a girl who's recently been diagnosed? So I think the first thing to say is very often a woman has had quite a long journey before she gets to her diagnosis of a bleeding disorder. Typically, we have seen women for more than 10 years, they have been seeking answers to their, uh, not just their heavy menstrual bleeding, but all of their bleeding symptoms. Um, And so for some, that's a relief that they in the immediate sense that they have a diagnosis and that they will have some answers as to how to manage their condition. However, for uh, patients with inherited bleeding disorders, of course, we're not just diagnosing an individual. We are very likely to be going on to diagnose other family members. And for women particularly, that tends to come with concern about her children or her future children, Um, concerns about other people in the family that she knows may have bleeding symptoms like her that haven't ever been managed. Um, And then, of course, because we are uh, usually diagnosing women when they are still fertile, there are lots of questions about when I want to get pregnant, how, where, when, what amount of medical management, for example, would be involved in uh, maintaining a pregnancy uh, and labour and delivery. I think there is an enormous impact on quality of life for women with bleeding disorders. It's well documented and it is well reported. Um, And this takes many aspects. They may, by the time we meet them, they're very often iron deficient, that impacts on quality of life. And we can do something about that, of course. But for the reasons I've already said about the impact on their family and their future having children, I think that these things uh, impact on their psychological quality of life and their emotional well-being. So we very much need to turn to the multidisciplinary team. And and in some occasions, we may well um, require the help of our psychology colleagues to support these women. Um, I know that you've already discussed the amount of bleeding during menstruation and the management of bleeding. But actually, as we move our ladies through their lifetime, we then see with the onset of the perimenopause, we might well see a further increase in bleeding. Now, this would occur, of course, in the general population. But where it occurs in a lady with a bleeding disorder, we need to be prepared to manage that. And if, as with everything, I feel that if you prepare somebody before things happen, they're much more likely to be able to cope when things happen and to know how to manage. So when to call us, why to call us, um, and for us to be able to put in appropriate treatment plans. And it's great for the, those women, their their daughters as well, because, you know, the other end of the scale is true, preparing for their first period, um, because people don't appreciate or understand what's normal if they've only ever experienced abnormal bleeding. So trying to prepare people and understanding when they should seek medical help is such a key part of what we do every day. Um, but I think for, you know, people in general practice or nurse practitioners or, you know, gynecologists that are seeing these women, 
there are so many supports available if somebody gets a diagnosis. And the key is really just referring people for assessment and getting that diagnosis earlier, because on average, we're seeing women, as you mentioned, in their 30s who have had a long history of bleeding and have suffered in silence or really been often rejected. Um, Their bleeding has been rejected by the medical profession, has been told as being normal when they understand there's something wrong because they're having so many problems. So there's so many supports available, but the key is getting people referred and diagnosed. And then we can offer our multidisciplinary team, of which we're very fortunate to often have access in our centres to psychologists, nurse specialists, physiotherapists, as well as um, doctors and nurses. So it, it really, there's so much options once people get a diagnosis. Absolutely. And I, I just um, was thinking there while you were talking that, you know, the impact of that heavy menstrual bleeding from the menarche, which we know is a significant symptom of a bleeding disorder, um, that lasts throughout that young woman's life. It has an impact on her uh, her friendships, perhaps her ability to attend school or university and going into the workplace, but also on relationship building um, as a young adult. So really, really important, both for uh, physical and emotional health that we get to grips with the heavy menstrual bleeding as early as possible. And where we have girls that we know are likely to bleed, that we are actually prepared from that first period because that gives us the opportunity to prevent some of that trauma. And absolutely. If you're, if you're a young girl and you've had to stand up and go to the bathroom and had blood soaking through your school skirt, like that's very difficult to overcome that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while some while all girls may experience some degree of heavy bleeding at the start, if you have persistent heavy menstrual bleeding in a young woman who that isn't settling, they should be absolutely referred for consideration of a bleeding disorder because the rates of bleeding disorders in those girls are up to 30 or 40 percent. So, you know, that's just a, a key patient group to really consider. And I know you mentioned pregnancy and, you know, we, we always say this, that pregnancy is not just the, the 40 weeks. It should start before you even thinking about becoming pregnant. If you've been diagnosed with a bleeding disorder, you can have um, prenatal counselling about how that could affect your, your children potentially. Uh, there are different genetic options for certain conditions such as haemophilia. But one part that we often overlook because fertility clinics may be separate to the general haematology clinics and the, the haematology hospitals where they're located is that some women will need treatment to prevent bleeding at the time of certain fertility uh, procedures. So that's important to get that message out there that fertility is actually part of their medical care as well. Yeah, and I think you've just touched on that message that we want to get across really, which is if you have a woman in front of you with a bleeding disorder, please let her haemophilia treatment centre know about any referrals you're planning to make, any procedure that she's planning to have done. It may be that we don't need to be involved, but we would much rather be asked upfront and be able to plan things to avoid any distress and any postponement of procedures that are emotionally charged for many of the ladies. Absolutely. And it's it's devastating when you find out the day before a procedure that, you know, somebody who needs treatment and needs that to be delivered in a, in a hospital setting and you need to postpone a procedure, whether that's fertility related, surgical, you know, any procedure whatsoever. That's a big upheaval for a patient to have that cancelled at the last moment. So I think for other um, healthcare professionals that are listening, 
you know, if you're a dentist and you're thinking about doing a dental work that could be quite invasive on somebody with a bleeding disorder, check with the local centre. If you're a GP who's referring for even simple things like biopsies or camera tests, we would like to know and be involved and we can provide support and cover. And obviously any surgical procedures, any childbirth delivery, that's all procedures and all um, occurrences in which we would need to be involved in order to safely plan that. Yeah, for sure. And I think there is no such thing as a minor procedure in a mild bleeding disorder. And very often these labels are really unhelpful. So we might describe something as being a mild bleeding disorder, but under a surgical challenge, the bleeding might not be minor. So we we really don't consider any questions to be unnecessary. Please contact us. Please have that discussion with us up front. We're, we're a very friendly group of people. We are. <laughs> We want to hear about our patients <laughs> getting procedures done. <laughs> um, you know, and you mentioned the dentist and there's a lot of things that good dentists can do without hemostatic cover. But we know what's right and what's wrong for individual patients. So we have some patients that absolutely no procedures can go ahead without some kind of cover, even if it's tranexamic acid. So, you know, that we really do have to make those decisions together. It's not about us um, dictating what procedures will go ahead, but certainly how they're covered and for the safety of the patient and for the surgeon or the dentist too. And we're there to provide support and enable everything to happen as easily as possible. Like that's our role. As you said, we're not trying to block anything, but we're trying to make sure things occur safely in this, the safest way possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, all of that ends up with happy patient, happy haemophilia centre and happy surgical teams and dental teams and hopefully absolutely no excessive bleeding beyond what's expected for the procedure. That's why we need to be at the end of the phone and we are at the end of the phone. So please do call us or uh, if your patient gives you email contact details for us, then just contact into the centre that way. Uh, and somebody will get back to you with a, a, a good treatment plan uh, and a management plan. Of course, one of the things we haven't mentioned, Michelle, is uh, the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And for a large extent, we try to avoid them in our patients. Certainly the use of mefenamic acid um, for heavy menstrual bleeding, we would really advocate against its use. But... Um, we would prefer perhaps if we have to use non-steroidals for certain indications that we would use a COX-2 inhibitor um, because they're associated with less bleeding. Is that the same in your practice? Yes, we, we would use selective um, COX-2 inhibitors, um, particularly atorococcib seems to be um, well tolerated, even our patients with severe haemophilia, providing they've got no other reason not to use it, such as cardiovascular disease or history of stroke. Um, but it, the... It, we generally would advise people to avoid using it. Often patients will have come to that uh, themselves before they've even been diagnosed with a reading disorder because they will perhaps have taken aspirin or diphene in the past and noticed that they had more bruising or some more bleeding symptoms as a result. So some patients have actually realized themselves that they are unsuitable for it. So that's uh, one of the key kind of uh, 
differences for patients in managing general practice is that nonsteroidals are largely out or selective nonsteroidals that they have to be used. And I would do that in discussion with the Haemophilia Centre. And also, in general, we advise against the use of deep IM injections where it can be avoided. Um, certain vaccinations, the new COVID vaccinations are largely intramuscular, so they have to be given by that route. But we tend to avoid deep IM injections because that can cause muscle hematomas and bleeding. And Deborah, I'd just like to add in terms of conversely to the to the points we were making earlier to our, you know, our dental colleagues and our surgical colleagues about patients with known bleeding disorders. If they come across somebody who has a dental extraction and has a lot of bleeding with it, they should feel free to consider that person for referral into the centre. Because, again, that can be a sign post-operative or post-dental extraction bleeding can be a sign of a bleeding disorder in both men and women. Absolutely. So anytime they see somebody that has bleeding out with what they would usually expect for the situation that they're in or the procedure that's taken place, refer the patient into us or back to their GP for referral to us. Um, we would rather have 10 referrals of no bleeding disorder uh, and not miss one. We really don't want to miss that patient with an inherited bleeding disorder because as we said back at the beginning of this session, Patients with inherited bleeding disorders come with families who are also affected. So we're not just missing one individual, we're missing other members of their family too. Well, Deborah, thank you so much. It's always wonderful to discuss uh, women and bleeding disorders and to go through these topics, which I hope have been practical and useful to the, our audience today. Um, in terms of the key takeaways from today's podcast, I suppose for me, my three points would be Please refer if you're concerned, just refer Um, start treatment early. Don't wait till they have their appointment with a hematologist for women with heavy periods. Consider alternative hormonal therapies or tranexamic acid or can really talk about an IUD, even in women who haven't had a baby yet. They're suitable for girls from adolescence onwards. And if you see unusual bleeding at surgery or dental extraction or after nonsteroidal usage, consider an underlying bleeding disorder. Is there anything you'd like to add to those? Uh, no, I think that the the same takeaways for me, we're, we're talking about an impact of a diagnosis that has long lasting effects for individuals and families. And those effects are both physical, emotional and psychological. And the, and the sooner we get to those people with bleeding disorders, then the better we can make their lives as they live with the bleeding disorder. Absolutely. So, Michelle, thank you very much for this discussion. And before we close, I'd invite all of you to listen to the other episodes of this podcast as well to learn more about the signs and symptoms of bleeding disorders, diagnosis and referral. The full series is available on hemostasisconnect.info and on your preferred podcast platform. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.